is an, to me, an interesting scene. Uh, early on in Jesus' ministry, picture this, if you will, okay? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He, he did his thing. He begins his ministry. The ministry is, is, is now, the ball's rolling. He, he, he's doing this. Uh, he's got some disciples now. And, and he comes back to Nazareth. He comes back to his hometown. He's in the temple. And, and they give him the, the opportunity in his hometown to read from some of the ancient scrolls. Uh, he gets to read from what you and I know as the book of Isaiah. And, and here's the cool thing about this. Like Isaiah wrote these words some 700 years before Jesus ever took a step. Before the, the earthly human took his first step. Isaiah wrote these words. And so Jesus is in the temple. He's got all his hometown people there. And this is, this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says these words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And here's the beautiful scene about this. Like, like this, is, this is crazy. The people, and they know Jesus, right? These people, it, it says in verse 22 that they all spoke well of Jesus and they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Well, like, like think about this for a second. They know him. They know which family he belongs to. And it says right there that they are in awe of him. What a sweet moment if you're from the town. Right? I mean, that's, our, that's, a, that's some hometown pride right there. That, that's our guy. Yeah, like we saw him grow up. We, we remember when, when Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they, they came rolling in from Egypt. We, we remember that. We remember when he got his first splinter and started crying down the street. Right? Like, like we remember, and look at him now. Man, he is in the temple, and he has th this, this honor of being able to read these ancient holy words. But look what happens next. Let's jump up on the screen. Look what happens next. Luke chapter 4, verses 24 to 25. And he said, like, this just happened. Like, I just read these words. And, and the last sentence is, and they are in awe of him. This is the next sentence. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, uh, let's come back to Jesus for a second. We'll, we'll explain this in a second. Let's come back to Jesus for a second. With everything that we know of Jesus, we've got to think that, like, he's a pretty good neighbor. Like, he might even be, like, the best neighbor on the street. He's always willing to help. He's made a servant of service. 
He's friendly. He's not having bad days. He's kind. And, and, and you would think that him being Jesus and growing up and being perfect, you would think that this guy always has a place to stay when he's passing through. Hey, Jesus, you're out and about and you come through Nazareth, call me. I got a place to stay for you. Right? Like, I mean, you would think that Jesus has a place to stay. I mean, just a second ago, they're in awe. They, they, are, they are marveling at how gracious and kind his words are. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows who they really are. One minute they are in awe, they're marveling, and the next, they are angered at his words. Listen to this. This is not coming up on screen, but listen. This is, this is all one conversation. This is a matter of two minutes. When they heard these things. So Jesus just talked about Elijah and this widow. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and they drove him out of the town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their, their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. Are you following me here? I mean, this is a conversation that just eight sentences ago, we're in awe of this guy. And we are marveling at his words. But then he talks about this, this, this Elijah, this prophet, and this widow, and all of a sudden, let's run him out of here and let's throw him off the cliff. Why the sudden shift in that? Week? I mean, that's pretty quick. I mean, why the immediate rage that led to him? That's drastic. Like, let's not just, hey, stop preaching here in the temple and go on. Let's take him out and throw him off a cliff. Guys, that's, that's pretty drastic. Jesus just revealed a piece of Jewish history that the Jews themselves would rather forget. Jesus just revealed in the reading from Isaiah and his comments to his neighbors that he was here to offer liberty, freedom to all people. Even the people groups that the Jews believed to be unworthy. That's what you and I know. The Jews would feel the same about you and I that, that they felt about the words that Jesus was speaking about this widow. You and I are these unworthy. And Jesus was willing to risk his hometown reputation on something greater. I grew up in a small town. I grew up in one of those towns that they, they think a little bit too much about themselves. Right? Maybe there's one around here. I don't know. There's some towns around here that have some reputations. Not naming names. Right? But, there, but you, you get it. There's, there's, some, there's some towns. Now, we, we think a lot of ourselves and that hometown pride wrong with having some pride in your hometown. That hometown pride can be pretty strong. And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to sacrifice my reputation on something far greater than what you think 
that he led into the conversation with, hey, truly, listen up. When he says truly, I mean, listen, pay attention. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But Jesus, we're in all of them. Like, they're in all of them, and that's the very next thing that comes out of his mouth, because he knows what he's about to say. He, he, he's about to step on some toes. He's about to ruffle some feathers. The fact that he leads into the conversation <laughs> saying that no prophet is accepted in his hometown tells us that Jesus was willing to be obedient to his Father in heaven over the thoughts of his hometown people. Jesus was willing to sacrifice these earthly relationships because of the higher calling on his life. And this year we are paying close attention to the characteristics of Jesus so that you and I can become like him. When we base this on several verses, one of them Colossians 3.10, it says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. And I love this Colossians verse. I hope that and I pray that you and I will be renewed. We will be renewed today as we learn to know Jesus, our creator, and we continue to become like him. And so as we look at the characteristics, one of these characteristics that we look at is sacrifice or sacrificial living. Jesus was willing to make sacrifices all through life. I mean, his whole life is nothing but sacrifice. As a matter of fact, when you think of Jesus, this is probably the most notable of all his characteristics. When you think of Jesus, when the average person, the common person just thinks of Jesus, they think of Jesus on a cross dying for us. It's huge, and without it, we're nothing. His love sent him to the cross for you and me to sacrifice. And so, as we look at the characteristics this year, we're studying other people. We're studying other people mentioned in the Bible who live out these characteristics in their life. And so, today, we actually want to. Look at the story that Jesus went in right before his hometown people tried to throw him out. That, that's the story we want to look at. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, 8 through 16, is where we're going to be. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing to bake, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first... Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, 
And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said. She, she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord she spoke by Elijah. So Elijah's the prophet, right? Didn't get into uh, all that was going on, but just a little brief historical context so that you know what's what's going on. Elijah, the, the people of Hebrew nation, the Israelites, man, they, they're they're lost again. They're they're living in sin, right? Everybody else has their own God, and this is the point in time where Baal is big. Everybody is worshiping this false god, Baal. And we haven't got to it yet, but maybe you remember the showdown on the mountainside where, where Elijah and all the prophets of Baal meet, and they're like, hey, you you dig your trench, you build your altar, and ask Baal to light it, and then I'll ask my God to light it. And, and so, you know, they build their altar up on the mountain, and they're praying, and they're doing everything, and Elijah, he's a trash talker. you got to love it. He's like, oh, what's wrong? Your, your, your God deaf? Well, what's he sleeping right now? You know, where, where's your God? And and, and he's like, maybe you need to yell louder. Maybe you need to do more. Maybe, you know, stand on your head and do it. I mean, he's just making fun of and talking trash, and it never happens. And so then he has his altar built, and he says, oh, yeah, just to prove that my God's God, watch this. We're going to douse it with water. And I want y'all to dig a trench around my altar because we're going to, I'm going to pour so much water on it, but it's going to, the trench is going to be full of water. And he does it, and then he says, pray, God, like this, baby. And God just boom, sends it down. So that hasn't happened yet. We're, we're leading up to this showdown with Elijah and the prophet. But God's mad. I mean, look, he's, you people are stiff-necked. You won't learn. So I'm going to send a famine over the entire land. And for three and a half years, it does not rain. God continues to meet Elijah's need of, of a prophecy. He does it. There's this moment in time right here where God tells Elijah, get up from where you are and, and go to Zareth. It belongs to Cyrus. If you're looking on a map, it's kind of over on the Mediterranean Sea. It, 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 it's very much Gentile land. If you move into the, the New Testament, God, God sending the messenger away from His own people to to Gentiles, and He says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a widow there feed you, right?" And so Elijah goes, and he just tells the story. So put yourself there. Put yourself in this situation, sir. You're a single mom. You're a single dad. It's been a long, hard, rough year. There's been loss of loved ones because you're a widow. And you're the only one there to provide. And everybody's hurting. Nobody has a freezer full of meat. I mean, everybody is scrounging around because the famine is that severe. You've never experienced anything like this in your life. And the pantry, it's bare. And a stranger shows up. At first, the stranger just asked for some water. 
Well, it hadn't rained in a while, so that means water's pretty scarce. I mean, it's not like, you know, we just got water sitting around in jugs everywhere. We, we got to go get some water. We probably got to go to a deep well. We got to get the water out. And she's like, okay, I'll get some water. But then this guy, the stranger, says, um, hey, if you're going to get something to drink, why don't you bring me back something to eat? Some bread. I need some bread. This pantry's there. You know that. And, and, and the reality of the moment is there is enough flour and oil for one small meal. And you're at the place in life. You are at the place in life where you have actually accepted the fact that this is your last meal. I mean, she says it. All I have is enough for one more meal. My son and I are going to eat it and then we're going to die because there is nothing else. And this guy just said, hey, before you make yourself something, The stranger asks literally for all you have. And here's the thing. Without a miracle, without some divine intervention, death awaits you and your child. What do you do? Now, on one hand, you could say, well, hey, what's one more meal? We're going to die anyway. I mean, you, you could take, you can make that argument. Uh, I mean, you can make the argument of, of, of what's the big deal because I'm going to make this little bit of bread and it's only going to last me just a little bit more time. So there, there's, there's that. So, okay, no big deal. I'll go ahead and make it for you. But here's the thing I know about people. Self-preservation is pretty strong within our DNA. We're, we're going to think long and hard about, oh, you want like all I and not only that, I've got my child to think about. So I'm kind of caught in the middle here. Because it's one thing if it's just me. Oh, but now it's my son as well. It's, it's my child. And you just asked me to feed you over my child. Holding on to earthly hope, and maybe that's what you're doing. Maybe you're just like just optimistic, and man, it's gonna it's gonna start raining, and then this last meal, man, it's it's gonna hold us over till till there's something else that comes along. If you're holding on to earthly hope, do you keep the meal for your child and hope that something else is gonna happen? The widow demonstrates a level of sacrifice. I don't know if I can fully wrap my mind around what she just said. She prepared the last meal for the Based on these words, you go put something for me first, and then God takes care of it. Me first. 
And then God's going to take care of you. This is what sacrifice looks like in God's economy once Jesus dies on the cross. The, the desire or the willingness to put others first no matter the circumstances. That, that's, that's, that's what Jesus is asking. That's what Jesus expects of you and I. It's for you and I to have this willingness to put others first no matter the circumstances. I mean, can you think of any greater circumstances than what the widow's going through? That's a pretty serious decision that has to be made. Do I give the stranger, this man of God, my last food, or do I give it to my own God? Our maturity as followers of Jesus does not happen. It will not happen without the willingness for you and I to live sacrificially. And I know that we can say this about all the characteristics of Jesus, okay? But, but without a willingness to sacrifice, we cannot, we will not become like him. There will always be a drought. There will always be just this ceiling that we grow to. It doesn't matter the knowledge that we gain. Without a willingness to sacrifice to the level that Jesus is asking, we cannot become like him. Last week, we talked about compassion. We talked about the Good Samaritan. Jesus, remember, he was asked. He was put on the spot. Who exactly is my neighbor? And not only did Jesus answer that question, the Good Samaritan is a picture painted by Jesus that shows the level of sacrifice that is expected if need be. Like, like, like there's, there's two things going there in that story. It's, hey, here's this is my neighbor. My neighbor is the person that I come into contact with, and oh, these are the circumstances that this neighbor is in right now, Am I willing to go the length if need be? Am I willing to do everything within my power to help this person? Let me read some Bible passages for you. Lot not, lot not come up on the screen. Philippians talks about this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now just think about this for a second. You, you can take this out of your household if you will. When was the last time you considered somebody more significant than you? Paul goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's the truth about what Paul wrote right here. We're capable of living a part of this passage out in random moments in life without a whole lot of sacrifice. I, I, I'm capable of considering the, the value of others above myself randomly at, at just different times throughout life. Maybe I hit it today, maybe I don't hit it tomorrow. Maybe I hit it two days in a row and then I don't hit it for a week. I, I'm, I'm capable of counting others more significant than me randomly. But to do this consistently, to do this with every neighbor, to do this with, with people that come into my world on a regular basis, to count others more significant than me, significant than me all the time, to look over their interests above my own interests, it requires sacrifice. 
God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. Verse 10, just minute. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. What's real love? Real love is the fact that he sent his son Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. What's real love? Real love is sending my son to be a sacrifice for you, to do something for you. Since God loved us that much, we should love each other the same. I love verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christ loved us. Gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice to God. Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were living in rebellion, while we were sinners, at our worst state, living in sin. God said, I love you so much. My son will sacrifice for you. First John 3, 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us so that we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Church, the Bible is clear. Real love for one another is all about sacrifice. The desire or the willingness to put others first, no matter the circumstance. But here's the thing, right? Like, I just don't jump into this. <clears throat> I can tell myself I want to, but the widow was like, I'm willing to give you everything I have. Now, I get it. Have a lot. Unless you have, the easier sometimes it is to give away. This level of sacrifice that Jesus is asking, that there's this expectation on us, this level of sacrifice requires faith in God for his provision. There has to be trust in him and not in humanity. There has to be a trust that God is going to provide and take care of my needs. And the widow in Zarephath has faith that her sacrifice, even though it doesn't make sense in human eyes, because it does not make sense in human eyes, this is the best thing to do. This is where my hope is, is in my faith in Jesus, in my faith in God, and that if I sacrifice this, if I give up myself, and I give up if there's a willingness for me to do whatever it takes to meet the needs of other people, that God is going to take care of me. And if you notice in the story, you know what didn't happen? Hey, if you do this one little small act, you know what's going to happen? Your pantry's going to just be overflowing. Your freezer's going to be stocked with stuff. You want to know what the promise is? 
there's going to be a little bit for you tomorrow. And there's going to be a little bit for you the next day. And a little bit for you the day after that. As a matter of fact, there's going to be just enough for you that, that you will be provided for as long as it takes until the rains come. And so she quickly leaves with this stranger folks. She had to have faith in God. And when this happens, God provides. So this begs the question that I have to ask myself. How often does this have to happen in our lives? You know, like, like seriously, like, like what's the... I know God wants me to do this, but like how often am I supposed to do this? Because here's the thing, every time we make a sacrifice by putting others first, hey, that's a good thing. That, 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 that's, a, that's a good thing. Can I have me some me moments over here? And I sacrifice like 90% of the time? Can I have some days in the week where, you know what, I'm going to take care of me and mine, and then I'll, I'll make some sacrifices some other times? Can, 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 can we work this out? Can I get a balance? How often are we expected to make some sacrifice? And Jesus, Jesus answers the question for his disciples. Luke 9, 22. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is speaking to a crowd. Alright? Like, like if you read Luke chapter 9 here, if you, you read this whole thing out, <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to a crowd. You know, the guy that wants followers. The, the guy that, that wants people to follow him, to become like him, to, to go into the world. And you know what he says to them? Hey, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself every single day. I'm telling you right now, that's, that's not good for y'all. That, that, that's not good marketing if that's your goal is to get a group of people to follow you. Deny yourself every day. Pick up your cross with which these people were very aware of, of the Roman form of torture called execution by the cross. These are not easy pleasant words to hear. But this is the level of binding that Jesus is asking for. If you're going to be my follower, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. And here's the thing, Jesus didn't have me he, he had some he and God moments where he went away and, and, and he, he rested in the presence of God. Okay? He, he had moments, but even those moments were all, all about Jesus re renewing 
of the spirit that was in him. It was all about praying so that he could come back out and continue to serve you and I. His life on earth was all about the mission. I don't get to have new moments. I, I, I don't get to, because when in the moment that I get to take in this, this me moment, it's all about me now. It's all about my needs. And, and I get Sabbath, and I get the whole the understanding of stepping away from people and, and recuperating and being refreshed. Understand that wholeheartedly. To sacrifice and you don't say, everything is wrapped up in this, it, it's, it's draining. But the moment I start living for me, I'm now not denying myself. I, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now living for something else besides Jesus. Paul says it this way. He's talking to it. And, and let me tell you, Paul jumped in. When, when Paul, when, when Paul was taking on the road to Damascus, he's all in. He lives it out. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I was reminded today of the passage in Colossians chapter 1. This is coming up on the screen. But it's where Paul says, My entire life is spent around making sure other people, other believers, are mature in their faith. I toil, I live for one reason and one reason only. It is so other people will have a relationship with God and other people will mature in their faith. That does not happen without sacrifice. He also said it in, in, in Philippians, right? For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Like, I, I'd much rather go on, but I'm willing to sacrifice my life, delay that so that I can be here to show you, to help you live a fulfilled life as a follower of Jesus. Paul says it. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. And you say I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, my very existence, my very, I, I go to Dead and I wake up the next day. This day is all about my life in Christ. My life is crucified. I'm now living for Christ. And everything about my day is about Christ. Everything about my life is about the sacrifice required to be a follower of Him. I do everything to I live by faith. He loved me. Michael has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son. 